talking about a concept that is important to the gospel. All right? So let me ask you this. Does this principle of having a vision and a mission only apply to individuals? Should organizations have a, a vision and a mission? Okay. Okay. I, I think so, because there, there's a reason that they're, they're organized to begin with, right? I mean, there's a purpose that they've unified together behind as a group, right, in order for, for this thing to happen. If no effort is made to achieve the purpose of that group, then what typically happens? At best, nothing. At best. At worst, the group either ceases to exist or it makes up an inferior reason to exist. Like when a congregation that's supposed to be preaching the gospel focuses entirely on social justice. Or when a church that's supposed to be helping uh, the, those outside the walls focuses entirely on just being a social club. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to, to just take your, you know, wrap your brain around that and then put it on the back burner for now, okay? And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at verses, well, we're going to start in verse 1, and I think we're going to go through 18. Uh, I actually don't have the number right in front of me, so we're just going to say verse 18. Um, we're going to see how the early church, actually, I do have it in front of me. It's right there. <laughs> and you have it in front of you. Uh, yeah, so we're going to see how the early church first responded to God's inclusion of the Gentiles as a part of his people, and then we're all going to get on the same page, so to speak. Okay, so uh, this whole scenario, th this was a major paradigm shift for the Jews, okay? That the Gentiles might be accepted by God. That was a major Gentile, uh, uh, Gentile, this major paradigm shift that Gentiles were now considered part of God's people. And you might notice that even, even though we're starting at the beginning of the chapter here, it's a continuation of the story uh, from chapter 10. So we're still kind of jumping right into the middle of the action here, okay? So, so because of this, uh, we're going to try something different. We're going to start on message point number four, and we're going to eventually backfill numbers one through three as we go, and I promise it'll make sense, okay? It's kind of a cyclical na nature of how God, he turns vision into mission and revelation into realization, okay? But, but by doing this this way, we get to see through the point of view of the Jewish Christians, because they're all trying to make sense of what God was doing here. So, all right, if you've all made it to Acts chapter 11, uh, please bow with me. We're going we're gonna to open up in prayer here. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name uh, that you be with us all this morning, that you open our hearts and minds to be receptive to your word. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to get to preach your word to your people. Um, Lord, I look forward to, to seeing where we go from here um, as we enter a new year. God, um, I, I pray that, that we continue doing the things that we do well, but that we grow in the areas that uh, perhaps as a congregation we don't do well just yet, or as a church leadership that we're not... Uh, as, as comfortable in that role. I pray, God, that you will give us uh, courage and faithfulness and wisdom and discernment to be able to see where your spirit is leading, uh, not just as a congregation, but individually in our lives as Christians, Lord. Uh, not, not so that we can, you know, realize our, our fullest, you know, sense of you or whatever of ourselves. It's, it's really about who Jesus is, and it's about being the most sanctified believers uh, that we can possibly be for the sake of bringing honor and glory to him. Lord, we ask that you will uh, help us to, to live a life that shows Christ to our neighbor, shows Christ even to our enemies. 
Help that to be a part of what we recognize we need to do and to be. Now I ask that you guide this this sermon and, and that you help the word that's planted to take root and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Okay, so, so this is what we're talking about here. First of all, uh, the New Testament was originally written in Quanay Greek, and the literal definition of the Greek word that's translated Gentiles is nations. It's the word ethnoi, where we get our word, or ethnos. We get our word ethnicity. Okay, so uh, in Scripture, Gentile meant anyone who was not a Jew. But it was also used uh, with a negative connotation in the same way that we might think of, of like, heathen or pagan. Um, to, to a Christian, you know, there's kind of, there's a negative term that might be used for a non-Christian, and, and that's how Gentiles were viewed by, by the, uh, the Jewish people at that time. So, anyway, who, who are these particular Gentiles that we're talking about? Um, I know it's been a couple of weeks. Okay, actually, I think it's been three weeks. Uh, but, but this is a reference to Cornelius and his family. You remember this? Hearing the gospel and receiving it from the apostle Peter. And if, it weren't, uh, if you weren't here for that story, I know a few of you weren't here for that. Um, don't worry, Peter gives us a recap in this chapter. And that story itself contains the first three of our points today. So, but, but these Jewish Christians, these, these brothers who were throughout Judea, they understood enough to realize that the Gentiles having received the word of God was good news, but it was totally confusing to them. Because, see, they had grown up with the understanding that only the Jews were God's chosen people, right? And so everyone else was pretty much hopelessly lost. So they're trying to figure out what's going on here, but they were at a, a disadvantage because they hadn't been exposed to the same things that Peter had been exposed to, that he had experienced. And so... We're going to come back to that shortly, but for now, look at their reaction, okay? Look at their reaction to what they've heard so far. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, okay, for clarity's sake, all right, in case anybody's not aware of this part of history, the, the practice of circumcision didn't exist until God ordered Abram to do it to himself and his household as part of the way that he was going to be separate from, from the people groups, the ethnoi around them. And the practice continued with Abram's descendants according to God's will and God's command. So from the time that they entered the promised land, if you were a Jewish male, okay, being circumcised was non-negotiable. It was part of God's law. It was handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. And circumcision was basically equated with Judaism itself in some circles. Of course, just because a Jew had been circumcised, that doesn't mean he was a, he was a godly man, okay? Any more than, than being baptized automatically makes you a Christian. But they were intricately connected, okay? Now, to the Jews, any male who wasn't circumcised was on the outside of God's people. In fact, the difference was such a big deal to Jews, they referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcised uh, when they weren't calling them dogs, which that was another thing that they called them. And you may recall that, that the Jews had become so convinced that Gentiles were unclean, they wouldn't even allow, according to their own law, this wasn't God's law, but their own law, they wouldn't even allow a Jew to go inside a Gentile's home or he would be considered unclean. And to eat with a Gentile was basically unheard of because to eat with someone was socially showing that that person was entirely 
acceptable to you. That showed total acceptance of a person to sit down and eat with him. This, this is why Jesus caught so much flack from the religious elite when he, when he would eat with tax collectors and whatnot. So, so it's easy to understand the confusion of these Jewish Christians who, who they heard that Peter had been doing something that was so against tradition for them, it might, have, it might as well have seemed immoral. And this is often where people come into the middle of something that the Lord is doing. They come in right in the middle, and they may not yet be in a position of understanding. And so the first response is often criticism from those who are as, as, as yet uninitiated into God's plan. And I suppose it's easy for us a couple of thousand years later to think about how silly it is for these Jewish Christians to criticize Peter. I mean, after all, anyone who's ever been in leadership knows. You know what it's like when you see something differently and the people around you don't yet share your vision, right? You know, as, as Scott Adams, uh, based on, to paraphrase you, the Dilbert guy, um, he said, that pop that you just heard was a paradigm shifting without a clutch, Right? But if we're being really fair, we, we can probably understand that response, right? I mean, after all, it was more than just, but we've always done it this way, right? It was more like, it's literally never been done in any different way. And this was based not only in, in eight years of exclusively Jewish Christianity, but also multiple centuries of Judaism, even millennia. But instead of getting upset... Instead of accusing them of being, you know, you guys are so close-minded or whatever, Peter, Peter realized that they didn't yet understand that God was moving in a way that had been made obvious to him, but not to them yet. So how does he handle the criticism? Does he take it personally? I'll wait. No. <laughs> but Peter began... And explained it to them in order. Listen, this church, this is the mature, godly way to handle criticism. After all, Peter, he'd been trained by literally the master, right? And particularly when it came to, to explaining things to, to clueless people. Jesus was really good at that because he had to do it a lot. So when, he, when Peter receives pushback for getting involved in something unconventional... Okay, he, he, he goes to the step of explanation, which in this point is communicating what, what he's received of God's vision. Okay, now anyone who's ever been in a position of spiritual leadership probably knows how difficult that can be. Okay, because, because part of the struggle is not only, not only are we trying to communicate it to other people, we're not always certain of what God is communicating to us, you know, but, but on the rare occasions that... I, I, maybe I shouldn't say on the rare occasions, but I'm going to just be flat out honest. It is. On the rare occasions that we're certain we're hearing from God, we're not always skilled at communicating it to other people. And even then, it may not be received, at least not you know, immediately. And so, so it's important when bringing others with you into the move that the Lord is creating, it's important to be patient, and it's important to explain the method to what might look like madness at the time. So with that in mind, let's go through Peter's description of the events that are being discussed here. It's a recap for those of you that were here three weeks ago, and I'll try to fill in the blanks a little bit in case anybody wasn't here for that. Uh, Peter says, 
I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a, a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. You guys remember the, the vision of the sheet, maybe? For those of us who are unfamiliar with, with the Jewish dietary law, God had given the Israelites some very strict rules, right, about what they were supposed to eat and what they weren't supposed to eat. And the things that they were supposed to stay away from were called unclean to them, including, frankly, some of the most delicious things on the planet, you know? Like catfish, <laughs> bacon. <laughs> I mean, there's all the, there's these, these, it's, it, 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 I'm so glad I'm a Gentile. Anyway, um, just, just because of that. Um, but anyway, reptiles specifically were all considered unclean to eat. In fact, if a lizard fell into a clay pot and that clay pot was used for food preparation, normally the law required that the pot be smashed. That's how unclean reptiles were. And so Peter probably would have initially felt revulsion at this vision he was seeing. For us, it might be like you see a sheet lower down that's full of cockroaches and and spiders or something like that. I mean, you would have, uh, right? And Peter goes on, he says, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. No way, God. Huh. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Okay? And all was drawn up again into heaven. So God was showing something very specific to Peter. Ever since he was a small child, all right, Peter, Peter understood what his people considered clean and unclean. But God was revealing to him that there was about to be a major perspective change coming. And behold, at that very moment, he says, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers, he's got, some, some, he's got his posse, you know, his entourage behind him. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So what we have here, first of all, both from the illustration of the sheet and from the Holy Spirit speaking to him, Peter receives revelation from God, revelation from God in the literal sense, God revealing something to a person or to his people that was previously hidden. By the way, if you're familiar with the word apocalypse, um, a lot of times we think that the word apocalypse means, you know, the total destruction of everything. The word apocalypto uh, is basically the word revela uh, revelation or to, to show, to reveal in Greek. Anyways, um, that's in case you ever learn Greek. Uh, moving on. So, <laughs> um, so Revelation um, doesn't always take the form that Peter received it. You know, I mean, he, he got a flat-out vision three times. That's pretty awesome, right? It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes God is a bit more subtle, right, in his, in his approach. But, but Revelation is typically the first step when God has a plan and he's planning to bring it to fruition. He gives a revelation, okay? He provides a vision to his people who are intended to be a part of that plan. Now, usually, but, but not always, it's a person or a group of people that he intends to lead that kingdom movement. That's who he gives the vision to. But don't assume it always has to be like an earth-shattering thing 
that changes the entire direction of the whole global church like Peter's was. Okay, that it might be a vision for the direction that a particular congregation should go, you know, revealed to its leadership. Or it can be as simple as the Lord giving a husband a vision of how to shepherd his family. And, and that, that revelation of God, that's, that's the initial impetus that gets the ball rolling, you know. But there's another ingredient that's usually required to produce God's desired result, which Peter also shows, and that is obedience to God's will as it's revealed. Obedience to God's will. As it's revealed all throughout the Bible, we see that, that God has worked in tandem with human beings who he calls to specific purposes. And it's through our obedience that he, he does his thing, right? So, so Peter, Peter completely turned his back here on his whole life's worth of tradition, and he walked where the Holy Spirit told him to walk, which in this case was right through the front gate of an unclean home. And then Peter goes on to tell him kind of a Reader's Digest version of his conversation with Cornelius. Uh, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your entire household. You know, quick, quick side note, um, that particular part of the angel's message wasn't recorded in Acts chapter 10. And I'm really glad it's here, you know. And, and it, it, I, I feel like it, it just it adds to the coolness factor for us because, because reading that helps us to understand why Cornelius had a whole house full of people when Peter showed up. Do you remember that? For those of you that were here, he had a load of folks in his house just waiting, right? I mean, think about it. If you know, if you know the message of salvation, don't you want as many people as possible to hear it? Can I get a Yes. You have the message, friends. We can learn from that. Anyway, anyway so, so Cornelius, he asks about the message, and Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. So the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. Peter says, on two different occasions, just as the Jews had at Pentecost, right? As they believed the gospel message about Jesus heard from Peter. So here we see that God works through the obedience of his people. When we, when we receive vision from the Lord and we walk in obedience to that vision, we get to see him in action. And in this case, the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, that, that, was, that was irrefutable proof that they were no longer on the outside of God's people. But the door had been thrown wide open. It was wide open. So then what was Peter supposed to do with this? I mean, clearly he's, he's not going to argue with God, right? Wait a minute, God, you made a mistake. You know, no, he doesn't do that. You know, they're not Jewish, Lord. No, instead, he recognized what was happening. And then Peter continues, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, this is Jesus speaking that he's talking about here, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I that I should stand in God's way? 
Now, this is a key part of the explanation here, okay, of, or, or of Peter's recounting the story as it happened. Peter makes sure to connect the vision that God had given him with the mission that the Lord had given to the apostles originally. You guys remember what that was? Anybody? What's that? Go forth and make disciples. The great co-mission. As you're going, he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And of course, Jesus also told them right before ascending to heaven that they would be his witnesses to, his, to all nations, right? And even unto the ends of the earth. So, so what, what God was doing among the Gentiles and what he was using the Jews to do, it was right in line with the original mission that he gave to the apostles. So if you're ever uh, in a leadership position or any position where you're trying to relay a vision that God wants you to communicate to his people, the best way to get them on board is to show them the connection between that vision and God's mission. Which is also our mission. Which is his people's mission. Now there, there's, always, there's always the overarching theme of making disciples. I mean, that, that's what Jesus commanded specifically, but it also helps when we have a specific idea of what a disciple should look like, meaning what, what qualities or, or character traits should a disciple of Jesus exhibit. And this is actually where Crossroads' missional statement comes from. You may not know we have a missional statement, but we do. We believe that the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ will gradually become sanctified into patterns that resemble Christ himself. And so we've tried to summarize it, you know, very, very briefly with four basic characteristics. These, these four things are what we believe that we exist to do, and they are what we hope to see growing in all of those who are part of the life of the church. Those four things are love God, love others, serve the least, and reach the lost. Now, that, that's not the main focus of today's message, and I don't want to get too far off point, but this is important, okay? So, so please hang with me. Clearly, to love God, you must have faith in Him. Clearly. But if you truly love God, then your life will be marked by obedience to His commands. Who said that? Well, yeah, Jesus. John 14, 15. If you love me... You'll keep my commandments. You ought to desire to live a holy life that is pleasing to God. You should grow in your desire to worship Him. Knowing that, knowing that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and knowing that he raised him from the dead, and, and that you've received eternal life through him, that ought to make your heart swell with love for God. You know, 1 John 4 says very plainly also that we can't love God if we don't love others. So that, that's a necessary component in the life of a Christian. That love for God and others will be primarily expressed in these 
other actions. Serving the least. That means, that means caring for those who can't pay us back. Okay? And reaching the lost is perhaps the most amazing miracle that God chooses to partner with us in. You know? Think about that. You know, Jesus says when we, when we care for those who are the least, we're caring for him. And when we're reaching out to the lost, it's really wonderful to think that God uses us to bring the message of salvation through Christ to other people. That, that is an honor. That is a privilege, not just a duty. Okay? So, so, so these, these four things, these are what we aspire to do as a congregation and what we hope to inspire in each person who attends here. Love God, love others, serve the least, reach the lost. That's just ten words. I think you can memorize it if you want to, and I hope that you will. It's just ten words. I'd like to encourage you uh, to try daily to walk in a way that helps you to grow in these four areas. Live your life in such a way that you see the fruit of these things happening in your daily walk. All right, now, um, for the final couple of points here, let's check out the last verse of today's passage. I want you to remember, Peter just recounted the amazing fact that God had poured out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles just as he had on the Jews. And, and, and that was way more important than worrying about entering a wrong person's house, okay? But, but again, what followed? This, this is a wonderful, beautiful picture of how mature Christians can respond when God's revelation is properly communicated. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Which among church people might be a miracle in itself. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, let, let's, let's go back to this list again, what we have so far here, which shows how God brings his people from vision to mission. Okay? He reveals his will or, or his vision for something to his people or a person that was chosen for that purpose. And then those people are obedient to what he's revealing. Okay? And when they do this, he works through it to affirm that it's his will. And then typically at first, there, there's some criticism, right? As people have trouble catching on to the vision. But if people who received the vision are faithful and patient to explain how God brought them to that point, and if they can show how the vision is connected to the overall purpose of God's mission, then other people can start to catch the vision too. And they buy into the mission. And what's the result of that? Well, for one thing, God is glorified. God is glorified. When we begin to see what he's up to, we are reminded of his character. God is just incredibly good. He is incredibly good. When we see that his grace extends beyond our expectations, it leads us to praise him. And, and coupled with, with the beauty and the wisdom of his plan, the, the most obvious response from us is to give him the glory. I think the Westminster Confession hit the nail on the head when saying that the purpose of life, the purpose of man, the chief end, it says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, for anyone who may be unaware, a couple of years ago, uh, Crossroad also tried to express who we believe we are. 
and what we aspire to be more fully, and that is God's people embracing the image of Christ for his glory. God's people embracing the image of Christ for his glory. That's another 10 words, but it's worth memorizing in case you ever feel like you don't have a purpose or you don't have value. God created us to glorify and enjoy him. And we do that by embracing the image of Christ that he is molding us toward. Anyway, I got, I got a little off subject, but, um, but, but here, here, this is here. God being glorified. Okay, this, this definitely is one result of God's people unifying around a vision that he has given to them. He's glorified. And the other result is realization of his and our mission. Realization. Okay, and by the way, I don't mean realization in the sense of, hey, I just realized our mission. No, I'm talking about the actualization of what has been foretold or forecast. That's what I mean by realization. Okay? In other words, it's the vision becoming real. The apostles' mission all along was to grow the kingdom of God by making disciples. And that is exactly what these Jewish Christians were so excited about. You know, God, had, they had, he'd just given them a gigantic new ocean to fish in. And that's exciting. And, and hey, don't miss this either, okay? The Jews recognized that God had granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. They didn't just get there on their own. They didn't just... Oh, the light bulb popped up. No, God did this. No one comes to repent. Listen, this is important. No one comes to repentance because they are a good person. It's something that God gives us. He grants us repentance. And I find that immensely encouraging because it's a reminder of the reasons that we glorify God to begin with. He is good. He is good beyond our wildest dreams. He is wise beyond our highest thoughts. And so, friend, it, wherever you may be in this process, you know, whether, whether you're feeling stuck in a rut without a lot of purpose, or if you feel like you're, you're just, you know, you're beating your head against the wall trying to get other people to buy into a vision that God has shared with you, or, or if you're confused and, and critical and trying to figure out whether your spiritual uh, life is on the right track, don't give up. Don't give up. You may be right where God wants you. Don't give up. There are a lot of steps, as you can see behind me. There are a lot of steps to the process between God providing the revelation and, and all of us seeing the realization. And that's okay, right? That's okay. Be patient with the Lord. And be patient with one another. God will accomplish his mission. The word says his plan cannot be thwarted. He will accomplish his mission. And if you're brought in, he'll use you. He'll, he'll use your family. He'll use your church. God is faithful. Now, of course, to do that, you'll have to trust him first enough to surrender. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to follow your own vision, you know, you've got this grand plan for how your life is going to go and 
and you're not willing to listen to God, if you're, if you're going to live out your own mission, then I've got some tough news for you. You're flying blind, and that is a suicide mission. Give up. <laughs> not give up in, 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 like I said earlier, don't give up in that. But I'm talking about give up, surrender to God. Surrender to his will. Don't give up on where he has you, but give up on your own thinking I'm the captain of my soul. No, we're not. God is sovereign. His plan is better than anything we can come up with. So trust him. Surrender to his truth. Surrender to his will and accept that you're not in charge. God is. God always has been. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for some, it will be too late, and I hope that that doesn't include you. And so this morning, we have, a, we have an invitation. Um, Everett's going to play a song, and if you feel... If you feel like you are led, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I'm not real big on the emotional manipulation side of things. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't want to get you to, to cry and do 47 verses of just as I am until you're like, okay, I got to go because otherwise we're never going to get out of here. We're not doing that, okay? This is, <laughs> are you clapping for that? This is, this is legitimate. This is, a, this, I'm just, I'm just going to say it, you know? You don't really need the invitation song. Hopefully, you don't even need the invitation. Hopefully, the Holy Spirit has already spoken to you. God has placed His Word in your heart, and He has shown you and opened your eyes to understand you must repent and turn from your sins and turn to God. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, the Word teaches that you need to be immersed in water, and then you need to walk in obedience you need to confess publicly that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm telling you guys, it says so in Scripture, every knee will bow. Philippians 2, every tongue will confess. Are you going to do it, though, here while you still have time? Or is it going to be when it's too late?